0: Hello, and welcome to episode number nine of the Art Inside the Craft podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Glazier, and today's guest, Kirk West, has a fantastic number of stories to tell about photographing musicians and Chicago blues players in the early 1970s, becoming the tour manager and photographer for the Allman Brothers Band, establishing the Allman Brothers Museum called the Big House, which is in Macon, Georgia, and many other pivotal contributions that wouldn't have happened without this incredible Iowa native. Through his carefree storytelling, he fills in some of the incredible history he shares during the past 40 years with the Allman Brothers Band, and how exactly he was able to acquire and open up his biggest gift to Allman Brothers fans, the Big House Museum. Let's listen in on that interview right now.
1: and I put him off, so we're on, here we go.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I appreciate that. Um- well, so I don't know if uh, if I've told you, but I write for a couple of different online places, as well as having my own website, and um, I kind of, you know, dabble in photography, and um, I really wanted to talk to you since, and I don't know if you remember, but I came over to the um, blues and black and white thing you did in Chicago at Chess Records. Okay. We, we met really briefly there. Yeah, I was a supporter of the Kickstarter, supporter of the book, so, I mean, I... Right obviously just love your work and everything that you've done with the Almond Brothers so I just I kind of wanted to start with um, obviously the one thing we have in common is both Iowa roots and um, Mm -hmm. I believe from looking some of your information up that your first camera uh, was a Kodak Brownie I kind of wanted to find out like how did you go from that living in Iowa to covering really all the amazing music and I guess heading over towards Chicago to do the work you did over there.
1: Gave me that. It wasn't even a real Kodak Brownie. It was a little knockoff of that sort of thing. It was a green plastic camera <laughs> that my grandma gave me when I was 10 years old. And uh, so, at, you know, at that time, I just kind of photographed whatever caught my eye. I, I was photographing my life. At that time, it was all about model cars, building hot rod model cars and stuff like that. And then uh, I got a little older and I got a little bit better camera. <laughs> um, and I got real hot rods instead of model cars, oh. and and it was uh, at that time I, I was uh, I grew up in a little town called Nevada, which is uh, uh, just east of Ames by about ten miles, thirty yep. miles, thirty-five miles north of Des Moines. You bet. Uh, um, the 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 jobs in that little town of three thousand people, there was only about four jobs that that little gearheads uh, cared about, and that was. Uh, working at the Ford dealer or the Chevy dealer or the Chrysler dealer or the Standard Oil gas station—you know, those were, the, those were the only four jobs that little gearheads really cared about. And uh, I got lucky and got a job as the car wash kid uh, at the Chrysler dealership. And uh, the son of the son of the owner. Uh, was a drag racer. About, uh, I guess he was probably eight years older than me. He was probably early twenties when I was in my teens, and uh, so I, I was their little gopher guy. You know, I would go out to the drag strip races with him, and and uh, and they taught me how to work on hot rods. And uh, they were a successful drag race team, and uh, I'd shoot pictures. And the local paper bought a couple, and I made ten dollars a picture, and you know it was a big deal. Huh. And uh, then, but I knew that the world was exploding. This was 1967, 1968. I knew that the world was rocking, and, and little Nevada, Iowa, wasn't. So, <laughs> uh, at the, the the night that I smoked any reefer for the very first time, my first smoking a joint with a bunch of buddies of mine at uh, somebody's farmhouse. Their parents were out of town, so we had a little party. And uh, somebody uh, somebody put on... And, you know, I mean, this is 66, 67. And so, you know, psychedelic music was shaking. And, uh, but somebody put on the Paul Butterfield blues album. Oh, yes. Uh, and it changed my life. I was uh, It turned my ass inside <laughs> out. I mean, there was no blues scene you know i didn't even know anything about that and and butterfield turned me inside out so uh, over the course of the next couple years i knew that chicago is where i wanted to end up and uh and so i got out of high school enrolled in uh, iowa state and uh, went to iowa state for about three months and quit and and moved to chicago and uh, uh this was in the summer of 68 and you know I mean shit everything was kicking. I learned uh, i still I, I still had my hot rod I had nineteen fifty one Henry J that wow. i had uh, that I had built while working at the Chrysler dealership and I had a you know a Chrysler engine in and push button transmission and you know <laughs> i uh I was a real little gearhead and I got to Chicago with this hot rod and I painted it orange and called it the speed freak and uh <laughs> and but my attention turned from uh you know scooping the loop on saturday nights to uh going into chicago i was living in the suburbs up near wisconsin and uh um and you know going into chicago to see concerts on the weekends and uh, you know so it gradually just kind of evolved from hot rods to uh, uh, shooting musicians and uh but at the time you know, I was just shooting my life like I'd always done, just taking pictures of my life like people do. And uh, and I had a pretty good eye. And uh, so little by little, it all kind of unfolded, and I became very involved in uh, attending concerts. I wasn't really, you know, i take a camera sometimes and not other times, you know. And, and it was not a, it was more of a, uh, a hobby but it wasn't even a, a committed hobby it was just something I did and uh wasn't until uh and I went through all kinds of trouble with uh, uh you know like kids do getting high getting too high getting busted doing <laughs> little, little lightweight crimes and stuff like that and uh but about 1973 I guess it would have been about five years I'd floated around, gone from Chicago to San Francisco and back, and then Colorado and back, and and uh, was getting ready to head to Florida. I have always kept coming back to Chicago. Um, I go to these places that were, uh, you know, places that I'd read about, that I heard about, that were beautiful places. And I go to these places, and oftentimes it was too cool, and I wouldn't accomplish nothing. And I, I kind of. In the long run, it, it ended up that Chicago was the right combination of inspiration and aggravation. Uh-huh. And so, uh, once I quit doing all the dope and stuff, my photography got quite a bit better, surprisingly. <laughs> you know, you, if you can focus your eyes, you're more likely to be able to focus the camera. And, uh, um, so, about 1977, I had I'd been living in Florida when I when I got clean and sober started shooting some stuff down there with a seriousness about it the Almond brothers had broken up they had been my favorite band I'd gotten to know them casually because I always had a pocket full of this or that so mm. they were always they were always glad to see me sure. and uh, um, but I, I got clean up down south and, and uh, you know I would have great pictures but they'd just be occasional you know I'd go I'd be have my head right and I'd go to shoot a concert and everything would turn out great. And then the next time I'd go, I'd be too pie-eyed. So it was a hit-and-miss kind of deal uh, from a from a professional standpoint, But and I wasn't a professional. Um, the, the first time I really got into selling my photography with any kind of seriousness was the summer of 74. I um, shot a lot of Grateful Dead shows. And, you know, it was the beginning of that whole shakedown street kind of mindset. And sure. so I'd print up a bunch of, uh, I, I print up a bunch of pictures and take them to the next show and sell them in the parking lot, you know? And, oh. uh, you know, it's like selling, it was like selling an avocado sandwich, only you could put it on the wall. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so that kind of unfolded. And then I moved back to Chicago in 77. And I really uh, had a pretty good head, that I really wanted to try to make photography my business, my career. You know, so I, I ended up going to work at a photo lab and doing a couple little things here and there and learned that I could make money with photography, but I hadn't quite figured out how to make money shooting music. Um, and, uh, I hooked up with a couple guys when I got back to Chicago in 77 and they had a little co-op and, uh, Uh, It wasn't anybody's real business. It was like one phone number and half a dozen photographers. (laughs) uh, So we all had our little uh, areas of interest. You know, uh, one of the guys liked big gaudy stuff like Kiss and Alice Cooper, and another guy liked uh, jazz, and I liked country and uh, and blues. Yeah. And there was a guy that shot nothing but blues. So. We all kind of found our little niche, and uh, everybody made a little living, you know. Most of us were working in photo labs or something. You needed a real job, uh, you know. Plus, it also gave you access to the best equipment in town. Yeah. So, you know, that whole kind of thing kind of evolved, and uh, started making a decent income, and gradually quit working in labs, and shooting the occasional album cover, and doing a lot of publicity stuff for local bands and, 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 uh, shooting stuff for newspapers and local magazines and that sort of thing. Uh, along those times, you know, the brothers got back together. I had gotten, I'd gotten real into, uh, knowing Dickie and Greg really well. Um, I'd stay at their place in Florida or they'd stay at my place in Chicago. And, and, uh, I got to know the blues scene really, really well. And, you know, so all that stuff kind of, just kind of gradually, organically unfolded, and then in '88, uh, uh, the uh, Polygram Records. Uh, this was the this was the era of uh, the beginning of everything being on uh, CDs instead of uh, instead of vinyl. So, uh, Polygram Records had just put out a box set called Crossroads, which was a four CD compilation of Eric Clapton's career. And uh, Polygram, uh, through some uh, legal bankruptcy issues, had accumulated, had taken charge of all of the uh, Capricorn Records catalog. Oh, uh, wow. And so all the all the master tapes to all that stuff, uh, Marshall Tucker, Almond Brothers, Wet Willie, all those Southern rock bands that came out of Capricorn, now all that stuff belonged to Polygram Records. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, i'd heard through the through the uh grapevine that they were gonna the 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 clapping thing had done so well that uh they wanted to do the almond brothers package and my name there was no the brothers were broken up there was dicky had his band greg had his band and and, uh, there was sea level going on and all that stuff so um there was no central management to do this package but every time they the, the company would talk to somebody. They'd tell oh, you need to talk to Kirk West. He's got all that stuff.
0: And, uh, Incredible. Because,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, throughout the, throughout the mid-'80s, I had decided I was going to do a book about the Allman Brothers. Um, it was going to be a, a, a photographic book, but I didn't shoot Dwayne and Barry. Um, so I had no pictures prior to 73. Sure. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I'll gather everybody else's pictures. You know, So I went to Dickie's house and copied everything he had, and went to Butch's house and copied everything he had. And uh, in the course of trying to accumulate photographs, I also copied everything else they had. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, newspaper articles and, and it
0: copied tapes. I had five different formats of tape recorders with me. Wow.
1: If somebody had a reel-to-reel or cassettes or something, I could copy it. I wouldn't ever take anything away from anybody's house.
0: Sure.
1: I just set up and copied in the garage or the living room or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so by the time Polygram, this was late 88, decided they wanted to do the Almond brothers i had uh, i knew where all the tapes were whether i had them or not
0: mm.
1: <laughs> so i got involved in that and it came out in 89 um it was called the dreams box set and uh, uh they used a lot of my photos i was an associate producer of the whole package and uh uh so and I would have, I would have actually paid people to let me do that. But yeah. Of honestly, course. I didn't raise my hand and say I'll work for free. So I, you know, like, Oh, okay. I can make a little do in this. So, uh, so I went out with the band on that tour to be, uh, just to be a photographer, to shoot the reunion and all that stuff. Cause the band decided to get together, uh, and promote this 20th anniversary package. Hmm. And, uh, it went so well they decided to do it full-time. So when they got back in 1990 uh, with the idea that they were going to do this full-time, uh, I shot the album cover for them. I was down there in Criteria. And I went out just to shoot pictures of the next tour. And they hired a guy that they didn't know to be the tour manager. And after three days, after a couple weeks of rehearsal and three days on the road, they were ready to kill him. Uh, because he was a, he was a young fellow that taught, thought if he talked loud, he could get Dickie and Butch to move a little faster. And oh, uh,
0: That's a that's bad the, idea,
1: huh? <laughs> oh bad idea, indeed. <laughs> so anyway, they hired me to be an assistant tour manager for the rest of that three-week run, and uh, they said, listen, he he ain't going to be talking to us anymore. He wants you to do something. He wants us to do something. He'll tell you, you come tell us, because you know how to talk to people, you know? So <laughs> They did that. At the end of that three-week run, they kept me uh, as the assistant, and they hired a guy to be the new tour manager, and uh, I shot pictures along the way, but I never left. You know, that was in the, that was in the spring of 1990, and uh, uh, I just never left. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> uh, uh, and over the course of the next 20 years, because uh, I retired in 2010, but over the next 10 years 20 years uh, I shot the album covers and tour and moved up to be tour manager after a couple of years and uh, you know that was my life that was my career the photography thing kind of fell by the wayside because I was on the road all the time so I wasn't in Chicago shooting this or that and uh, I was still doing all the photography for the band for the Almond Brothers but uh, the other part of my photographic career kind of dwindled and uh, and that was fine. You know, I mean, I missed out on a lot of stuff, but I toured the world with my favorite band. So, you know, nothing wrong with that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you just, um, not to, you know, dive into the minutiae too much, but when you kind of first, I guess, went to Chicago and then the, along the way, what kind of, um, I guess, photo gear were you using? Was it pretty simple stuff? And, I mean, obviously those early days you are shooting on film, which... Is I mean those prints are amazing when I look at them. So, <laughs> uh,
1: I didn't start shooting digital until about 2005. Wow. Um, I was given, you know, when you're out there with a big band, people give you shit all the time. <laughs> and you don't have you don't have to be the guitar player or the singer. You know, I was the guy that could give them passes. Yeah. You know, I was easy <laughs> to read. So, so in the very beginning of digital photography, uh, a guy from Kodak was a big fan he was a a sales rep or something i don't know what he was he worked for kodak and he gave me a camera uh digital camera and it was a lot like a toy it was like a it was like a digital version of a of a uh kodak brownie (laughs) you know it was like and it had a you know it was it had a, a removable uh disc but it was a uh 256K disc, that's all the bigger you, you know, I mean wow. you know, so, so it was a horrible piece of shit and I liked it, I tried to give it back to him, he said, no, 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 no. you keep it, it's yours, you know and um, so and then I borrowed a couple digital Nikons from a friend of mine to use, and I didn't like that, and, you know, my stuff was all Nikons, and every time I never bought a new camera, I always bought used used gear, because I was, A, I wasn't a tech hound, you know, Yeah. Uh, I was a. I was a photographer, wasn't a tech head, so, uh, you know, I got an, F, got an F1, got an F2, F3s, and knicker mats, and, you know, all kinds of stuff, <laughs> uh, I broke down one time and bought a hot slot that I really loved, shot a lot of covers, album covers with that. Oh,
0: cool. Oh, yeah, the, the Hasselblad story. I was
1: living on the north side of Chicago, and uh, at the end of the block was uh, was a white hen pantry, like an all-night 7-Eleven kind of deal. Oh. And so about midnight, <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning, I need to go get something. So I walked down the block, go to the 7-Eleven, or the white hen pantry, and the uh, guy behind the counter that I knew he says, listen, you're a photographer, right? And I said, yeah. He says, I got a friend here that's got a camera he needs to sell. I go, okay. All right. <laughs> Have him bring it over. So I come back the next night, and the guy's there, and uh, it's a Hossablot, uh 500C wow. uh, with two lenses and two backs, and, you know, uh, a Polaroid back, all kinds of stuff. Hmm. He says, he needs $1,000. He needs it in cash, and he needs it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I go, okay, I know oh. what kind of deal it. I know what we got going here. <laughs> so I said, I, I, I can't do that. You need it tonight? I got $500 for you. He says, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so, so I uh, I made that $500 back the next week. So it was like, and uh, finally I sold that thing. Uh, I had quit using film, like I said, in the late aughts. And uh, a kid came to the gallery about four years ago, said, I want to own one of your film cameras. I said, Why? He said, Because you've shot all this wonderful stuff. <laughs> I want the camera that you did that with. And I said, Well shit, okay. <laughs> so I sold him the hot box. <laughs> you know. But, wow. uh, but anyway, you know, so the gear that I had was uh they were tools. You know, they weren't something to keep polished and shiny. Right. Uh, by the time I Upgraded to the next camera none of the light meters worked. you know i mean you mm. drop a camera on a concrete floor <laughs> you know you know it was you learn light i didn't need light meters right i knew when, I knew when light changed you had to adjust mm. and i knew what hot yellows would look need to be and greens and yeah you know, so uh i wasn't a i didn't take care of my <laughs> my gear very well number <laughs> one um uh, but they they were not shelf items they were working items you know
0: so i i kind of find i mean for myself i i shoot a lot of stuff on film as well and i have a couple of digital cameras too but um it seems to really like it teaches you how to be i think a photographer not that i'm anywhere near a photographer professional photographer those skills that you have to learn in order to shoot on film or you really think about those shots before you take them <laughs> instead of oh, yeah. just popping off 100 shots a second, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it, you know,
1: photography used to be like magic, uh, especially in the darkroom. Those things were, that was, you know, the, the whole thing was magic. And now, you know, there are people that do nothing but shoot with iPhones. And it's amazing photography. Yeah. Uh, but, you yeah, know, when you've got 36 pictures on your roll of film and you won't know if you got it until you get home and process it. <laughs> you know, that, you, you have it. it demands that you do the thing the right way.
0: Yeah. Now,
1: now, you, I got a D700 uh, Nikon that I bought years ago and, uh, yeah, I can go out there and shoot a thousand pictures in a night, you know, and, uh, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me, really. Uh, yeah. But you know, I'm an old dog. I'll turn seventy next week, and and, mm. and so I'm not a, a a fast adapter to things, and <laughs> and I'm okay with that. And, yeah. you know, I got, I got a buddy here in town who uh, is a a very good photographer. Not a professional. You know, he's a total tech freak, and it. I don't even have, like to have conversations about that sort of thing <laughs> you know? so anyway there I go yeah
0: I mean go ahead well I was just gonna say you know I've just uh I, I, I kind of go backwards a lot and I just picked up um some expired Fuji film f- for a land camera and uh that pack of 10 cost me about 70 or 80 bucks so, every single shot that I, I mean, I've taken one shot, and it's had film in it for a week, so, I'm, I'm picking my shots, I'm checking my lights, I'm making sure everything's just the way I want it, you know, I just, I, I really like that analog feel, and that's why I love your pictures, I mean, I was looking through some of your stuff, and, um, like, the Freddie Fender pictures, and the Lowell George, and Bob Marley, I mean, that stuff's incredible. Thank you man <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just so fantastic so um, yeah and then um, the only other thing I kind of wanted to dive into a little bit was just uh, um, I think a lot of people kind of know the story of the big house and how it happened but did you I mean were you you as you said you were kind of already collecting a lot of stuff um, along the way anyway but once you bought the big house um, I guess how did that kind of all come about? Well, uh,
1: OK, the uh, during one of my trips south from Chicago, uh, you know, a, a, a research trip for the book project that I was doing in the 80s, um, I came through Macon uh, and nobody in the band was living in Macon anymore, although Jmo was in and out of Macon. He was mostly in Atlanta, but I came by and <laughs> the house, the big house was empty. Um, nobody was living there and it was for sale uh, so I just called the realtor and said listen I'm looking at uh, I want to look at this house I want to see about it and they said okay so they were uh, try to show me and uh, so I took pictures of the entire house every room inside and out the property everything mm. acting like I was a diligent buyer <laughs> so that was about 80, 87, 88 something like that but, you know, I had no intentions of buying the house. I didn't own anything but cameras and a used Subaru. and uh, um, But I had the pictures. So a number of years later, uh, after I was working for the band, this would have been 92, I think, um, there was a little outfit down here in Macon called uh, the Georgia Allman Brothers Band Association. Basically, a fan, it was a fan club.
0: Sure, yep, I follow them.
1: And uh, so uh, they were having their... I think it was the second Gabafest little fan gathering at a hotel here in Macon. And I, and a buddy of mine from Chicago drove down with a minivan filled with t-shirts and posters and some of my photographs, but mostly it was just tour swag and stuff, you know, hmm. there was, uh, there was no, uh, legitimate fan club. The band had just been together a couple, three years at that point again. And, uh, So I drove down here with my buddy. And while we were down here in Macon, uh, Chank Middleton, Greg's best oldest buddy, uh, uh, was hanging. And he said, listen, you want to go through the big house? I said, sure, man. Well, at that time there was a African American family. He was a lawyer. She was a school teacher and they had three or four kids. So, uh, Chank and a couple other fans, did a little walking tour. Mama Louise went with us. Mm. And so we went through the house and the, the, the wife, the woman of the house was really wonderful, warm and gracious. And her husband was a real jackass. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> but the whole time the house was in really bad shape. And, uh, the whole, we were there about a half hour, 45 minutes, looked through every room up to the third floor and back down and all that. The, the woman in the house kind of made all these gestures, these comments, these asides that somebody that knew the history or had the money or whatever. It just I came away thinking that she was trying to sell me the house. Oh. <laughs> and Chanks said the same thing. He says I think Louise wants you to, or uh, Helen, Helen wants you to buy this house. <laughs> I said, okay. So that, and I had just been married. I got married in 91. Um, and uh, so I come home from that little trip and tell my wife that you know, and we were looking. She was an ex- she was a, a high powered business executive in the insurance industry, and I was me, <laughs> you know. So our, <laughs> and our lives didn't blend all that well. She had a whole different lifestyle. She was a huge music fan. And, uh, I had met her through a personal ad that an old girlfriend of mine had written for me. Uh-huh. And, uh, so I pulled out the proof sheets from years ago and showed her the house. She says, Oh my God, Kirk, uh-huh. Oh my God, this could be our future. And I'd never owned anything bigger than a Subaru. And, uh, <laughs> and she'd owned several houses and renovated them and she'd been married a couple times and I never had. So, um, I said, well, look, maybe that's our future. She said, let's go there and open a bed and breakfast. So, okay, I'm good. You know, I'm <laughs> on the road. You, that, you can do that. I'll, we'll be there. So we go down in January of 93 and uh, meet the folks and look through the house. And like I said, the uh, the, the wife was a lovely woman and her husband was a jackass. Mm-hmm. And he told us, sitting in the back porch, He said, uh, now, there's people in this town who want to get my ass out of this house. They know what this house is worth. They know what the history is. They don't want somebody like me in this house. They want somebody like you in this house. And, uh, you know, what do you say? You go, okay. Um, So he said, I'll tell you what. This is the price I want, and if you don't give me the price, I'm going to let this house fall down around my shoulders. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And the money he wanted was twice what we had okay well we can deal let's see what we can do we get an appraiser and it appraises for half of what he wanted and uh oh man this isn't going to work but he was right there was a mortgage company that gave us a loan a construction loan we couldn't get a real mortgage so we bought it and gave the guy what he wanted and he went out and bought another house for his family and uh paid off the mortgage actually in one of our visits the wife said look why don't you just rent a house move down here she says, because we're going bankrupt and you'll be able to buy this house on the courthouse steps <laughs> wow. for what it worth i says helen i don't want to do that i want i don't want to steal this house from you people yeah. you know i want and and so we did it the right way and uh so we took uh, ownership of it in uh, late summer of 93. And the whole idea was that we were going to be in Macon in five years, open a little rock and roll bed and breakfast, have three rooms available to the public, you know, to stay in, sure. and have and have two rooms downstairs that that housed the collection. We called it the archive rooms.
0: Ah.
1: And, uh, you know, we, uh, we found out <laughs> right away once we got down here that city – building codes and zoning ordinances essentially prohibited a bed and breakfast. Mm. Um, so, okay, we'll figure it out. We just won't charge anybody. We'll put a donation box there, you know? And uh, <laughs> and that's what we did. That was in the uh, summer of 93. And about, uh, I guess it would have been about 2004 or five, a little over 10 years, my wife decided that she was tired of making... She was tired. We never had the money to get the house completely the way she wanted it. Uh, it was fine for me. It was the first house I'd ever owned. And it was a big, beautiful place, you know. And uh, But a couple of the rooms, we never did get renovated. And uh, it turned into a business operation because we had started uh, Hitting the Note magazine and a little mail-order merch company. So we had a lot of stuff going on. And uh, at some point, about five years in, we realized that we were getting really committed to staying in Macon. We bought bought the house next door that became available, the big old gorgeous Victorian. Um, We turned that into the business house. We moved the magazine and the merch company next door and let the uh, young hippies that we had hired to work with us. Uh, We had three or four people living there at the house next door so we had a little hippie commune kind of deal going on and uh Kirsten got tired and decided and i was gone all the time i was tour managing government mule and, and and the brothers so i was it was three years i was almost not home at all so we started looking around to have somebody buy we had these two houses i was trying to sell both houses and the collection to somebody that wanted to do what we were doing and we found a couple guys that really loved the whole idea, but neither one of their wives wanted to leave Charlottesville, Virginia, or uh, uh, Akron, Ohio. You know, I mean, wow. so I can I, I understand not wanting to leave Charlottesville. But why the hell you want to stay in Akron? You know, but uh, um, but between the two of them, they came up with some great ideas, and so we formed a five hundred one c three nonprofit Big House Foundation started raising tax-exempt money to redo the house and turn it into a full-blown museum. Huh. And, uh, and that's what we ended up doing. Um, we uh, sold the house and the collection uh, to the foundation in 2007 and moved out. Mm. And it was it was then that we started... Because in order to turn it from a private home with some... Uh, uh, you know, with some loopholes. So we were, yeah, we because we had, we had over twenty thousand people knock on the door when we lived there. The wow. fourteen years we were there, we had over twenty grand knocking on the door, and uh, and so we uh, closed it up, moved out, and uh, rebuilt the whole house. Put in a whole new uh, air conditioning system. Replaced all the windows. There were seventy some windows in the house, and and uh, we got a lot of people, uh, uh, a contractor from uh, New York State came down with his whole crew and put on a roof and all the windows and we had tons of people contributing and then we you know we raised a lot of money we raised four million dollars to do this wow and uh three million of it came from friends of mine on wall street <laughs> um yeah they all my brothers were huge in new york city and these wall street guys <clears throat> were just were the best you know they loved the brothers they had grown up listening to them all through college and these guys were like millionaires now you know so
0: yeah
1: uh, they you know they'd hold benefits where we'd raise 300,000 in one night shit like that so they yeah the wall street guys they may be cowboys but they loved the allman brothers and they were <laughs> stand-up characters so
0: wow um,
1: fascinating. so you know that's how that whole thing came together and now the Big House run, Foundation runs it. I kind of do a little this and that for them. Uh, we went in a couple years ago and and, and photographed the entire collection of memorabilia, mm. guitars, clothes, paperwork, all that stuff. And we did a book uh, last year. Came out early this year. Yeah. Called called the Big House Collection, and it's the pick of the litter. You know, it's, uh, of the best of the collection. And uh, you know, so that's it. They. You know they're doing well. It's a it's a big tourist attraction here in Macon, and I'm very proud of it. You know, but we go over every now and then and just kind of hang out a bit. But you know, I didn't want to be the I didn't want to be the retired boxer that stands at the front door
0: greeting. (laughs) Sure. I was down there four years ago, five years ago maybe, and Uh um, stopped in and talked to Richard and um, Willie came by and gave me a tour and. Uh, it was it was a really great experience so that's about the time I started really learning the history about uh, your involvement with it so that that to me was just incredible that uh, you know someone can come out of Iowa and just have that kind of impact on uh, you know something that I love so much music photography the almond brothers <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Kind of everything cool all wrapped into one little spot <laughs> <laughs> I like it like that isn't that And so, um, kind of the last thing I'll touch on before I let you go is, um, uh, your, your gallery there, um, in Macon. When did you open that up and get that started?
1: Well, that happened about five years ago. It would have been, I think it was five years ago this past February, I believe. I, uh, I had done the, uh, a couple little gallery shows, one here in Macon, one in Jackson, Mississippi, uh and then a buddy of mine from baltimore got me hooked up uh doing festivals uh you know selling pictures in these little artist tent at the music festivals and stuff oh. and I did that for a couple summers i don't camp and you know lockin or uh, mountain jam they're all out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and uh, and i like i said i'm not a camper so we'd have to drive 45 minutes to get to a hotel and every day so, and, and I thought, you know, this is fun, but it turns out that I like hippies in small doses, you know. And, uh, and there I was standing underneath a sign that had my name on it and had no way, ability to like split. Oh, I got to go. Greg's, uh, you know. Uh, so we decided, I said, let's, uh, let's. i tell you what, let's do. Greg used to come down here and play Macon for a week every January. Um, so, uh, the, there's a little space open downtown, and we knew the landlady, and, and uh, we thought we'd do a little pop-up for Christmas, and and and, and the, the renovation, we were the first tenants in this building, and, and it just didn't work out. It took too long. So, we were just going to do, it like, a, a, a 60-day pop-up, and it ended up uh, being a full-blast deal. Thought, well, hell, let's give it a shot, and uh, and it turned out pretty well. And Kirsten's a great party planner, and it's her business. It's my photography, but it's her business. And um, so, you know, we did well and had little monthly uh, music events. We got a little corner stage in the place, and uh, uh, so, you know, it was a it was a cool scene. But it wasn't a young hipster scene. It was like for old dogs like us, and uh, you know. So, it worked really well, and a lot of traffic, it's become quite a, a destination between, uh, it's only a couple blocks from the Capricorn studio that they've reopened, Yeah. and it's, uh, it's a mile from the big house, and it's uh, just down the street from the H&H, so, you know, everything is, we've got this whole, we're on the circuit, you know, we're on, <laughs> you, you, you come to Macon, you go to the big house, you go to Capricorn, you go to the H, you go to Grant's, you go to studio, the Gallery West, so... Yeah now we've been closed primarily since since march uh because i had had i'd had a couple years of bad health bad heart attack with quad bypass and and, uh uh, intestinal issues and and uh, pneumonia i got all kinds of stuff so we were getting ready to do this brothers show in new york and i hadn't worked for the band since 2010 Although I did go out with uh, this outfit called the Brers, yeah. and Bush and Jam put together, you bet. That was a that was in 2016, I think, and so that was the first time I'd actually been out touring again. It was a lot of fun, uh, but I also realized that I'd lost a step or two. Mm. Um, so this thing turned out to be uh, this thing in New York was going to be my. Uh, let's just see how much stamina I got. You know, let's see what I can do. And I was going up to document and photograph everything and, and do a, a three-day book signing, meet-and-greet uh, sale of my photography and books, and uh, everything went great. The, the concert was spectacular, and I, I caught COVID and uh, came oh. home with it uh, and was sick as a damn dog. Um, wow. And we haven't had the gallery open since March. We did open on Father's Day weekend and did really well. Hmm. But then the COVID kicked up again down here and people got freaked out. So, yeah. but Kirsten, she's actually at the gallery today. I was just over there this morning and signed some more prints and stuff. And uh, we're gonna open on Fridays and Saturdays now to see how it goes, you know? Uh,
0: yeah.
1: The big house in Capricorn are both open. Uh, they've closed grants for the time being because bars can't be open. Um, you know, we'll see. She's going to be over there Fridays and Saturdays for the foreseeable future, and see how it plays. Um, we're redoing the website. We're putting all the web. We're we're doing a website that'll include all the books and the gallery and my uh, my photography. So we'll uh, kind of gear up for maybe doing primarily uh, internet sales. Mm-hmm. And we'll. See you know, so it's a, it's a fun thing. It's a, it's a great little deal in Macon. Um, we've created, Kirsten and I have made our, made our mark here in Macon between the house and the gallery. And we used to promote shows all the time, uh, clubs and concerts and stuff. So, you know, uh, our five years, <laughs> we're, screwed, we're screwed down here for life and we love it. You know,
0: oh, that's I mean, wonderful.
1: I tell you what, man. It's a small town. I was just down there, and I don't hardly ever go out, just because it's uh, it's dangerous for me, and and we're not supposed to go out. You know, sure. we're supposed to let low and protect ourselves and your neighbors. And uh, but I'm walking a couple blocks around downtown, and two or three people. Hey, Kirk, how you been? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's nice to have that kind of connection to a, your home. So sure. You know, and living in chicago or san francisco it wouldn't have been like that so right you
0: know. yeah that's incredible i'm uh i'm super glad that i got a chance to talk to you today i'm glad you're uh healthy and, and getting back on the mend and uh yeah i just hope you continue putting out books because man your your photography is really like uh you know, it's like a guidebook for me on what I should be doing.
1: <laughs> wow, cool. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> right on, man. All well, right. Thank you so much for your interest, and I look forward to seeing how it all plays out.
0: All right. Thank you so much. I hope you and your wife stay healthy, and uh, hopefully I'll get back down there soon to see you guys.
1: Good deal, brother,
0: man. Yes. Okay. All right. See you, Kirk. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you so much to Kirk and Kirsten West for all of their contributions to the Almond Brothers Band. I'd encourage you to visit their website, www.gallerywestmaking.com, where you can see a number of Kirk's photographs, order prints, or grab copies of either of his two books. Those books are The Blues in Black and White, and that covers Kirk's photography in Chicago during the 70s and 80s, and his other book, Les Brères, which is a photographic journey with the members of the Almond Brothers Band and contains over 900 photographs. Thanks again to both of my sponsors, Pure Mountain Coffee and Black Cat Bone Productions, for their continued support. More incredible interviews are in the works as we speak, so stay tuned and I will catch up with you all down the road.